Welcome to People More Interesting Than Me, the podcast, where I step back and let fascinating individuals take the spotlight. Join me as I sit down with incredible guests who captivate and inspire, showcasing their stories, experiences, and wisdom that make them truly extraordinary. Tune in for engaging conversations that'll leave you enlightened and entertained. I mean, at least I'm entertained. This week, we're joined by a true political strategist extraordinaire, Matthew Creighton, the founder of Publitics. Matt has been the guiding force behind campaigns at all levels of government offering counsel to both public and private sector clients. Notably, he's played a pivotal role in the 2020 presidential campaign, creating Biden's viral, we just did. In an era where technology shapes political landscapes, we'll also explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and political strategy. Matt's insights into how AI advancements are influencing the political sphere promise to be both fascinating and eye-opening. Whether you're a seasoned politico or a curious observer, get ready for insights and revelations from a brilliant mind of Matt Creighton, founder of Publitics. Enjoy. Uh, where, where are you out of? I, I saw that you have, I guess, a uh, main office in Jersey and then a satellite site in D.C.? Yeah, so I am... Uh... In Jersey, so I spend most of my time uh, here. But we also have satellite offices in Philadelphia, uh, Washington D.C., and also um, uh, Wilmington, Delaware. Okay, yep. interesting. The Amtrak court, Northeast corridors. So gotcha. No, that is nice. To be fair, I love the the train system, and I, obviously, I wish it was much better in the U.S. compared to like Europe, just because like. Uh, what was it maybe like a month ago my wife and i went to a wedding in philadelphia and it's just amazing to do that over driving to philadelphia from dc i mean because <laughs> you get on there you're there in like two hours um it's amazing um so i won't do like the normal cheesy introduction we can just dive into it what two two questions i like to ask just to break the ice and make it comfortable is it's kind of guilty pleasure. One is uh, when you're growing up, what was the go-to meal when you guys were in a rush or? Sure. That uh, that's a good question. So when I was growing up, uh, we, we had a couple of go-tos, um, which I think is pretty, pretty similar uh, for, you know, for a lot of people of my generation. So we, uh, we had uh, multiple varieties of, of uh, chicken with uh you know different different sauces so uh like campbell's soup right dumping a can of campbell's soup over it um or uh like mac and cheese was always it was always a good go-to in uh in a pinch but uh it was definitely a lot of uh, a lot of chicken and then also which is interesting so this is something um i, I was thinking about uh, recently because we were talking about like generational divides uh among our, our team uh here and um one of the things that popped into my head were these uh the tv dinners right so i think you and i are probably in the, the banquet uh yeah well yeah. banquet if you were like lower that was like probably the cheapest one you could buy but banquet and pie, yeah. pies but keep going yeah the ones uh the ones with the uh, the uh for the kids the one uh they had like penguins on them and like other zoo animals and stuff. So Blue box. yeah yeah yeah, penguin, yeah. i remember that Yep, exactly. So, so those those were always uh, on on tap too. Potent, uh, you know, if we needed uh, needed something, and 
I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I go to the food store all the time. I haven't seen anything quite like that in a while. I'm sure, I'm sure they're still in there if I went digging, but uh, I, I don't know if kids these days have the, have the pleasure of enjoying one of those like soggy, you know, kind of brownies coming up. <laughs> I was, I was I was gonna mention the brownie, but I didn't want to stop your uh, your momentum. I was like, that brownie was just like, it wasn't bad. It just tasted unnatural. <laughs> oh, yeah. the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, there was there was something up with with those. But you know what? It it was good in a pinch, and, and you know, still alive, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, so I can tell you, I don't still eat those. Those are not my uh, guilty pleasure these days. So I'm I'm really trying to watch what I eat, um, which is you know, uh, just kind of a health kick, you know, I, I think you, you turn, well, I don't know, at least I did, you turn like 35 years old and you start staring at, down the barrel of 40 and you're like, ah, you know, maybe I should start taking care of myself and, you know, worrying about things like blood pressure and cholesterol and all that stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm like, I, I think it it's like a seesaw. It's just like you get to an age where you actually have career stability and you're actually making income where you're like, I can like, it, it, it's funny. It's like 401ks. I understand 401ks. I can put money into 401ks. I can, I can afford bread that isn't uh, whiter than uh, snow, basically. Like, like all these things that you can pay a little bit more for, and it's not like pop tarts is or cereal is like the only thing you can have for breakfast. Like you can have maybe some healthier options. Oh yeah, that's right. The, uh, the you know sourdough, right? Nice sourdough. <laughs> exactly. Like. That's right. Afford some seeds on the on that outside of that bread. That's it. Um, a little artisanal. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned your team. Can you dig a little into, I guess, your team and I guess how you started and your mission? Sure. Yeah. So how did I start? This was what I like to call a very millennial kind of story. Uh, so I went to uh, went to college. And my intention was to become a teacher, uh, to teach high school social studies history. So, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, so I did history and uh, as, as my uh, major in undergrad and a minor in political science. And then I got my master's degree in, um, in education. Uh, so I went through the whole process doing the student teaching, all of that stuff. Um, but uh, so I graduated with my uh, undergrad in 2010 and uh, master's degree in 2011. Uh, but in the middle of all of that, there was this little financial crisis, uh, un unfortunately. And that had a devastating impact on the teacher, uh, teaching profession. Um, in New Jersey, there were, there were these drastic budget cuts uh, across the board. So uh, jobs were getting eliminated left and right. And what ended up happening by the time I was out of school was uh, for every job opening, there would be hundreds and hundreds of applicants in some cases. And many of those applicants already had a significant amount of classroom experience. Uh, so here I am, college grad, um, you know, no no job, uh, or very few jobs. So, I, you know, I put a bunch of applications in, uh, didn't, didn't hear much of anything back, which is pretty typical, again, of, of uh, you know, people in my... Uh, of of that cohort and and uh, the other piece of it too is like while that was going on I started to reflect a little bit on my experience because I did the student teaching thing and love the active teaching love the students it was a great time uh, doing that what I didn't like was the the increasing amount of paperwork 
required in in the teaching profession, right? So all the standards and the testing and um, all of the stuff that I honestly don't think really helps students all that much. And and as um, as an educator, it was uh, mind numbing uh, to be honest with you. So I mean, and you, we started to see a lot of uh, you know uh, teachers at the end of their careers leaving because it was just kind of getting to that point where it was a little miserable for them. So, um, so I started to reflect on it and go, well, you know, do we even want to be doing this long-term? Can I see myself? Cause like, once you go down that path, it's very easy to do it for the rest of your life. You get tenure, it's, you know, great job security. Um, you know, uh, but it's, it's hard work. Like, I mean, I have a lot of, uh, teachers who are uh, friends who are teachers, um, you know, family who, who are in education and, you know, the, the stuff that they tell me it's, it's tough. So I was thinking, you know what, maybe I don't, want to do this either so i just like took the first job that came along um was applying to all sorts of different things so i ended up uh getting a job at the university graduate graduated from in the alumni affairs department so this this was a wild thing to be doing uh during a financial crisis so my particular uh position they, they created two new positions for uh for two young alums one from one campus one from the other campus so i came in with another uh another guy and uh, we shared an office the size of uh, like a broom closet, basically. What, what university was it? I don't know. Uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University. Okay. In New Jersey. So um, not many people would know it other than uh, there was some success with the uh, men's basketball team. Uh, wow, few, okay. yeah, yeah. So made it to the uh, to the tournament and um, made some waves, beat some beat some pretty big name teams. So we're pretty excited. Uh, definitely not a marquee basketball program, but, but every still, now that's good. I mean, I feel like. People like those over, you know, like Kentucky and all those ones. But oh man, I had a lot of fun watching it. It it was it was a cool, it was a cool experience because it's not a big sports school, right? So like you talk to people who went to like Notre Dame or uh, oh yeah, yeah. Like Georgetown or some of these other schools that have like really or even Seton Hall, which is you know right near us, uh, where where they have um, consistently very good sports teams and it's a totally different environment, right? Like you know people are all into it. Like FDU is like well you know yeah it, it's <laughs> it is completely different because it's it feels like they're always on if that makes sense mm -hmm. but if you're like one of those schools that comes out of nowhere it's like yeah we we probably spend like uh three hundred thousand dollars on that program a year where you guys spend like in the like millions and millions by the time you remember that time we went all the way you know what i mean mm -hmm. like it's just yeah. like you don't always have to be on like you know yeah, sort of like uh, cicadas, right? They emerge every uh, 14 years or something. So Exactly. That would still be good for your school, though, every 14 years. Not bad. Yeah, no, that would be pretty consistent. And, and you know, the amount of money they spent on uh, on or still spend on athletics is pretty small, compa very small compared to, I think the head coach, like I had heard some rumor that, you know, he was being paid somewhere in the forty five dollars to $50,000 range. So he left immediately after the <laughs> he was left. over. He left immediately. Oh like, yeah, I mean, like that's over. that's like one of those positions you see in clickbait, like uh, like a week or two after, like how far they make it, and then you're like, oh, coach accepts head job at like Louisville or obviously not like a can. I, I don't even like basketball, but I always find those stories fascinating. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, so yeah, so I was at Fairleigh Dickinson. Um, and actually, the sports thing is kind of an interesting. Um, element to what we were doing. So we were hired specifically to cultivate young alums to donate to the school. And a big part of that job was cold calling through recent grads. This is with the financial crisis. So they were asking you to uh, cold call these people during that. I love that. That's oh, like, uh, it was awesome. That's like, uh, 
trying to get what what's that uh blood out of a stone that's right that is right. So, uh, so I had a lot of conversations, some interesting conversations, uh, many, uh, ended in people telling me to go do certain things to myself or jump out of certain, you know, you know, jump out a window or it's so a lot of, uh, colorful sort of responses, which I don't blame. I mean, like stu student loans, right. And, and, uh, very few job prospects, uh, a lot of, a lot of frustration at that point. So, you know, you learn, um, you definitely learn some lessons about rejection, <laughs> during that whole uh during that whole period so um so we were kind of doing that um not f what i would characterize as fun work uh, but it was it was something and then 10 months after we were hired we were both laid off positions eliminated so i was like oh <laughs> what am i gonna do now so while i was doing that i was like you know i've always liked politics and i liked uh you know communications type work so why don't I just try to start up like a little bit of a side hustle, see if I can't get a couple clients and and whatever. So I did that and um, didn't didn't get too much traction for the first uh, you know first year, and then I got laid off and um, took another job at the university doing some other you know civic engagement stuff for a little while. Um, but then I ended up getting a couple of clients um, on on the side. Uh, so um, you know it was just basically me and you know a credit card and uh, and an LLC, right? So <laughs> so that's how it started. And, um, I was like, well, you know, what, what is my pitch? Because, you know, typically candidates, it was, so I was looking to work in politics specifically do political consulting, help uh, candidates get elected. And, um, I was like, what are they going to trust me to do? I'm, I'm right out of school. I have no marketable experience in this space other than having in grad school worked at the, um, public mind poll, which was a public, in, uh, po public polling institute at FDU. Um, where, you know, you measure public opinion on a variety of, of issues and, and in specific campaigns, approval ratings of various elected officials and stuff like that. So I got a uh, really good experience in, in the polling side and research side of things during grad school, but again, not the same thing as running a business. So I'm like, what, what would people trust me to do? I'm young. Let's do digital, you know, like let's do digital media. So I went and pitched myself to a couple of, a uh, couple of campaigns. We ended up, uh, I ended up getting uh, brought on to help manage a uh, local town council race, nothing huge, but you know, it was, it was good practice. And um, then ended up also working on a congressional race. Uh, I reached out to specifically because I knew it was going to be a loser. Um, and because the winners don't hire people like me. And if they do hire people like you or me, um, the job would be getting coffee, you know what I mean? Fetching coffee for, and, you know, running around pounding yeah. signs into the ground. So I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. So, um, so they ended up hiring me. Uh, we ended up winning the, uh, the local campaign, which was a bit of a surprise and ended up being a really great networking opportunity. Can I circle back to something that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is just like the coach who won or took you all the way to the basketball thing. So this is where you get, you get asked by a bigger school for a better job, correct? <laughs> uh some something like that it, it took a while for for things to to gear up so it was a lot of uh you know a lot of grinding it out a lot of networking a lot of meeting meeting as many people as possible um and and honing the craft too i think that was that was the most important uh thing that uh i dedicated time to doing is, is learning everything that i could about what i was trying to do so um so it's going to sound this is going to sound super super nerdy but in addition to trying to uh, you know, learn everything I could about these 
digital platforms like Facebook was like the big thing at that time. You could still get a ton of org organic reach. It was it was like the heyday of Facebook. So that that was the big one. Um, and I uh, also was like digging into ap academic papers and like social psychology and like persuasion and like all sorts of different things, like super like just trying to learn, like, how do people think? How do they react? How do they um, you know, how, how can you communicate to people in a way that's compelling? Um, and that'll stick. So, so I kind of went down that path too, of like trying to learn everything that I could, um, and, and still, still do that actually, um, which, which I think has been very helpful. So, um, you know, between that and honing the craft and then, and then some blind luck as well. So, uh, this is 2012 and right before, uh, election day, hurricane or superstorm Sandy hits New Jersey. Um, so that was uh, this big, like hurricane, like monster hybrid hurricane storm thing that uh, you know totally steamrolled New Jersey, uh, put a lot of people out of their homes. Uh, power was out everywhere. Um, so I got a uh, a a Twitter DM from from a guy who I'd been going back and forth with, trying to. I was like, he lived in the same town uh, that I that I live in, and uh, I was trying to get him uh, his absentee ballot application because he was going to be out of town for the election. And I was like, oh, you got to vote, whatever. Uh, so he shoots me a DM and he's like, hey, do you want to uh, come meet at the only bar in town that still had the lights on? Now, this is the like grossest, you know, place you can imagine, like the the diviest of dive bars, you know, sticky, sticky floors, you know, the taps hadn't been cleaned in decades or whatever. But I was like, whatever, let's go, you know, why not? Right. So uh, I met him. And at the time, um, he had, he had just started his own consulting firm in the same space and had worked uh, for a U.S. senator um, and got to talking, uh, really great guy, uh, mentor. And um, ultimately, uh, he was like, I need some help, extra capacity in my firm. You, know, you do want to do some like consulting on the side? So I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, so things kind of snowballed from there. So, the, you know, I, I think the lights going out actually kind of helped uh, during during Sandy. So there was a little bit of blind luck in there as well um, in, in starting this and, uh, you know, I've been rolling ever since. It's funny you say blind luck because I think I think people think it's luck, but it's just consistent effort, if that makes sense. I think there's a certain point where you where you plateau and you feel like nothing's going right. But if you keep on going on that the marshmallow test you you give a, a young kid like two marshmallows and then you say hey i'll give you another marshmallow if you wait and if you wait even longer i'll give you two more a lot of people think it's luck when they get into those situations but if you're in the right spot continually doing what you're trying to do and you step and then you wait for that spot to open up sometimes it is luck but sometimes it's just continued effort that you you finally get rewarded for yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, I mean, luck in 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 part is is putting yourself in the position for something to hit eventually, or some catalyst to to move things along. So that that you know the the power being out was a little bit of a catalyst, but um, you know, just being in the position to, to even. I mean, there was a little serendipity that that he was on a you know list as well, you know, voter yeah, list. That's really true. Like, right, we got to get you to vote and all that stuff, but um. But it it just uh, yeah. So putting yourself in, in the position to have a break every now and then, because if you say no to stuff, I could have said no. I mean, like I don't, you know, yeah, I don't know yeah. you, and uh, you know, I, it's cool. But like, I'd rather just like sit at home in the dark and and whatever. Um, yeah, if you look at it that way, I mean, nine times out of ten, you probably wouldn't have gone. Oh like, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 also being there and being open to it, and then the odds of 
something like that lining up. So I guess you doing, I guess, uh, work like that, you probably had a lot of those resources of that company that helped bolster it too, right? To get your, I guess, your legs out for your own company. Yes. So uh, Steve is his name. And, um, and he, so he helped me in a lot of different ways. Uh, so he was, even though, you know, I was trying to start my own thing and, and was very much still kind of independent while working with him. Um, he was very generous in making introductions to his network, which, which was, was vast. I mean, he had been, um, you know, working in this space for, for a while at that point and, and, and rose to prominence in, in, uh, in, in those circles. So, um, he was not shy, uh, or, or stingy with, with introducing me to people, which, which I'll be forever grateful, uh, for. And, um, also just not having any idea what I was doing in, in many senses, right? Like I kind of, like I knew how to do the work at that point, um, for the most part, I mean, there's still always something that you can learn, but I, you know, for the most part knew how to do the work. So, um, but I learned a lot of the, the business of how, how to be in business from him, right? Just watching, uh, which was extraordinarily helpful as well. And then, you know, also getting more hands-on experience working on some of the projects that that he he was working on. Um, and then also, you know, I don't know, I guess if it, some people in his position would have been like, nope, you can't do anything on your own. Like you're, you're working for me now. Like this is, you know, you, but he was very uh, flexible too. If I wanted to go like do a campaign or some other thing, um, he was always perfectly happy to to support me in doing that as well. So, you know, it's, I think mentors are, are super helpful. Like, so above all, um, great, you know, business partner and uh, fantastic mentor. Uh, so that, that, that really did help in, in a number of ways, watching um, him and his style and building his business and, um, you know, doing the work on, on his end as well. And we talked about this a little before the interview, but do you think that point of time gave you time to evaluate kind of the market for PR, like really analyze where there was a vacuum for you to kind of fill with your company? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, because I think uh, we're still trying to figure it out, right? Like, I, and that's always, um, I, I mean, that's that, always good, it, though, you because I feel like if you really know it, it's too late, if that makes sense, like, it's kind of stale. Whereas if it's kind of a amorphous, type thing it's just kind of constantly changing which is what the market will be if that makes sense in any respects sure yeah absolutely so so i think it did give uh give me an opportunity to to evaluate the broader market um and and look look for gaps in there so so one of the things that i saw kind of early on that that was a huge gap in the communications consulting and, and pr space was that a lot of firms would, and not every firm, but a lot of firms would come in and lead with tactics. And there wasn't uh, a strategic component, well thought out strategic component to how to accomplish something or why we we're even doing anything, right? So, you know, you get firms coming and saying, oh, well, we'll do a bunch of press releases for you, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, great. Like, but why? Why are we doing press releases? Like, who's the audience? Who are we trying to reach? Like, what? You know, if you great, like if you get your story in the New York Times, but you're you're like a you know B two B like super niche uh, software company, for example, uh, you know SaaS company, maybe that's not the actual 
place that you want to be focusing on. Like, you know, there's some very specific like trade magazines, for example, that might be a better pitch for the media relations side of things. So I think, um, you know, seeing a lot of that just like sort of tactical, like, oh, we'll just like do all these things and without actual like an organizing principle for for why uh, was was a huge gap in the market. Now, marketing that is harder than it looks or sounds, right? <laughs> you, you would think that that'd be... Yeah, it's not quantitative. You can't really show that unless you've got like a case study of someone that you've worked with before. That makes it, sense. It is. And, and, and the, um, you know, there's less of a of, of sort of a one-to-one um, measurement of, of strategy than there would be a tactic, right? So like I say, I'm going to send a press release. I send the press release and it gets picked up by some outlet. That's a very one-to-one thing. So it's like, you know, I did the thing, got picked up, mission accomplished, where strategy is much more global than that. Um, so you can see the impact in different places in an organization, whether it's like internal communications or, or through, uh, increased sales and revenue or, uh, brand equity, you know, if you're measuring that through uh, public, um, public opinion sort of research, um, but it's not always evident immediately, which is, which is a tough thing to do too. So, th- so that was, that was an interesting thing. Um, also working, working with him and kind of getting my feet wet is trying to figure out what people value um as 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 a service provider for for them and a consultant and and a trusted advisor ultimately so that that was a bit of a shock to the system because as a young uh, practitioner of of some of these things you think well you know the person who does the best work should be the one who is most successful in the short term that's not always the case right now i do believe that is in fact the case in the long term long term you're going to have a much more sustainable business um than than if you don't invest in doing it the right way but short term there are a lot of things that people like prospective clients value over the the work itself sometimes which which was a hard lesson to learn because you you kind of get angry right you're angry but you're like why i'm doing all this great work i have the numbers i have the data i can show you something else right there's some other thing some other shiny object so that was an interesting lesson speaking on that do you feel like a constant job is to i guess tell the campaigns or the uh candidates how to see something long term where they're constantly just looking at the short term like Mm -hmm. for example obviously i'm i'm saying this from a, a point of view where i i don't know much about it but if I'm a candidate, I'm looking at the polls constantly. And then obviously the biggest thing is if I win rather than, you know, uh, uh, I guess that's the biggest picture for a candidate, but for a campaign, what do they say? Um, like for legislation, like you don't really see anything until eight years down the line mm-hmm. when something actually gets passed. How do you, I guess, get that across for stuff that's more long-term than, you know, yeah, I, so I, I think uh, there there are a lot of layers to to that. So, you know, the first layer is I think we're all why this this is kind of goes back to that marshmallow test th- that we're talking about, right? So I think uh, there is a lot of incentive to just eat the one marshmallow before you get the second one, right? R- rather rather than waiting it out because there are a lot of short term rewards to be had, um, both uh, and and we're sort of wired like this, unfortunately. So. For example, if you're a candidate and you're talking to someone and they give you good feedback, um, that's important and helpful. 
but it's they're a sample of one right it's that's one person so it's like they give you good feedback and then they tell you to do x y and z and then you're like oh i'm gonna do x y and z because that felt good right that was like the hit of a hit of uh you know um of uh, chemicals in my brain that i needed you know so i feel great after you know susie from the next town over tells me that i'm, I'm doing great and they love my campaign um so, th so that's a little tough in in being able to pull yourself back and, and make an objective assessment when when you know you're you're constantly confronted with stimulus. Uh, the negative is true too. Someone tells you you're doing something wrong, sample size one, and yet uh, there's this instinct to address that one thing immediately or to or address that thing at all, which is kind of a, a a crazy thing to do. So you're constantly trying to say, okay, like let's take a step back, look at the actual strategy that we laid out and um see where we are on on that roadmap essentially that we that we drew out for you. And you know, where does this what this person is saying fit into that? And and oftentimes the um the answer is no because there are a lot of armchair whatever's, right? Armchair campaign managers, armchair, you know, quarterbacks, you know, <laughs> like watching sports, right? I'm sure everyone's got like some some idea of how so whatever their favorite quarterback could could have played differently or their head coach or uh you know you, like you remember growing up like hearing people yell at the tv when the football game is on he's like, oh you know he could have called this it's like do you know that though like there's a reason you're sitting in this basement watching tv and they're they're on the field even if they're not the best head coach in like professional football or whatever there is a reason that they are there because they they do have some degree of expertise so anyway i think there are a lot of armchair experts out there um which is fine, but, you know, figuring out how to react to those things is tough on a short-term basis. The other thing too, is seeing a few steps ahead. So does it make, so if you get punched, does it make sense to punch back right away? Or do you want to take a step back, reevaluate and play, play the game a couple moves down the board? Um, you know, sometimes you do want to punch back and, and that does make strategic sense. Other times you want to just wait let it roll, you know, roll off you and um, do the next thing. It's but specifically in campaigns, it's highly emotional, right? So like if you're running comms for a brand, it's a little bit different because the brand is the brand. And um, yes, like people have an emotional connection, but the people working for the brand are not the brand in some ways. Yeah. They there's are. no face. Well, sometimes there's face to, to a brand, but yeah, I understand what you're saying. It's indirect. Right. It's not a commentary on you personally often times right so um whereas a candidate it's always directly about you specifically as a human being so that that can become uh that's a hard thing to overcome to, to sit there take a punch and, and look strategically down down the line um and even beyond that like we've had situations where um uh, you know again you're looking at, at just the next step and saying okay we have this problem right in front of our face and um even with non-client, like people who are, who who we were pitching for business, and you tell them something that they don't want to hear, and and then they don't hire you because there's another firm that that's willing to tell them what they want to hear. But um, you know, for example, you know if um, you know if you're having issues, like say you're a hospital executive, right, and you know you're having issues with the nurses and. Uh, your instinct is, well, let's let's bury the nurses union. Well, what do we know about nurses, right? Just got out of a pandemic. They went through hell uh, along with, you know, all the other people in the hospital, medical professionals in the hospital. Um, extraordinarily well-regarded profession, right? People love nurses. Um, I think everyone's got a story where a nurse, you know, gave, brought them profound comfort or saved their life or whatever. 
Um, so like nurses are kind of on a pedestal, right? So you're going to fight with the nurse, like knock them down. It's so, so, you know, then you, then you go and you say something like, well, you know, I understand that this is the immediate problem that you have, but you also have problems X, Y, and Z. And perhaps you can just let this one slide work and then work with the nurses on problem X, Y, and Z. And then you'll be in much better shape because you're not fighting the nurses, number one. And then you come out looking ridiculous and, and they're going to win anyway. So it doesn't matter. Like, they, they, I mean, you know, it's, it's bottom line, like for the most part, they're going to get a good chunk of what they're asking for. Um, and number two, then there's going to be bad blood when you're trying to figure out the rest of the issues that, you know, if you figured, if you do are able to solve those problems will benefit you and your staff and, and the bottom line and all that. But people don't want to hear that. They're like, Oh, let's just go out. And it's like, just take a step back and, and look like sometimes the, the way through a problem isn't to, isn't try to take, isn't to try to take a wrecking ball to it. You know what I mean? And so that, that's a huge instinct. I think, um, a lot of short-term thinking, um, not, not very strategic, uh, at all. Um, so it's, it's interesting and it's not always, I'll tell you, it's not always profitable to tell people, what they don't want to hear, but you know, I'm a big believer and you kind of have to. So. Yeah. Just you describing that sounds like uh, me talking to my son. Like actually, like if, if we, we know the hard conversation you have to have all the time, it's just funny. Cause when I, when I go to work, I try to avoid those like hard talks I have to have with my boss in your profession. You have to hard have the hard talks. That's like, like if you're not having the hard talks, it, it might be fine short term. But obviously, long term for elections or or public relations, it'll be negative, just like you said, with time frame and um, I guess analyzing the impact of situations or um, I guess certain um, I guess situations that they might get into um, with. Obviously, in the last like five or 10 years, it's hard to tell with COVID years and everything with that, obviously cancel culture is a probably a huge thing that you have to think about, I guess, in every step you make. Um, obviously, it probably means a lot more business, but it also means, I would say, walking on eggshells. Would that be kind of like a uh, close to um, what it's like? That's, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I I don't want to say walking on eggshells. What I would like, what I would rather, I would rather frame it as um, having cultural competency. So there's this whole idea that, um, that you know, and I better watch myself as to not get canceled because it's like you can get canceled on both ends of it, right? Like in one way or the other, right? You can, yeah. I mean, you can, you can get poked. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it all boils down to the audience, you know what I mean? Like, cause you have, I mean, obviously there's, there's a strong civil, civil rights, but then civil rights aren't so clearly defined. That's the issue. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So, so the way that I, the way that I kind of think about this is that, um, cancel culture in many ways in the, in the way that we think that most people think about it is actually just market capitalism. Right. So it's there is no unseen sort of entity or omnipotent force forcing these views on anyone. Right. This is sort of a cultural evolution that is taking place uh, among people who consume 
the good services, the media, the content that's out there. And they're expressing some kind of preference for one thing or the other. So the question is, uh, from a business perspective or from a candidate perspective, uh, do, you know, wh where do you want to meet people where they're at and where do you want to lead them? And, and where does it make sense to do either of those things? So, um, so the people that get canceled, I think, uh, are it, you know, granted there are circumstances where it's maybe taken too far, uh, ultimately, but you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it is what it, it, it is what it is, right? Like you kind of have to understand your market, right? So like you, you don't want to, um, you know, it's, it's like, it, it, it's, it's really, is just understanding market. Right. And, and, um, and again, you don't have to, to pander to people, right. That's not, that's not what you should be. You should obviously always be authentic to yourself. Um, and are there circumstances where the public maybe should be a little more lenient, uh, or, or understanding of, of like a joke or something that maybe wasn't serious or, or, or even be able to sort of, um, kind of have some perspective on, on the seriousness of various things. Sure. Is, is that the case? But I think overall, um, you know, you, you, you have to know what, what your brand is and what sort of thing you're, you're going to be leaning into. Um, and you know, it's, it's like comedy, for example, is like a, a big, a big thing that, I, you know, you, you, in some ways you hear the lament of like, oh, well, you know, you can't tell jokes anymore, but like, also I hear plenty of very funny comedians telling jokes still, you know what I mean? And like some of those jokes are kind of edgy, uh, for some audiences and, and hilarious for others. Right. And, and they still very much have a, a market, uh, for, for those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, in, in those senses, it's, it's just sort of like figuring out like, you know, who, who, who's your audience, who do you want to talk to? Um, but it, but it is an interesting cultural moment again, because I, I don't think that there's any, again, like unseen force that's like foisting this upon society. It's more, um, just like a cultural moment that, that we're in. Uh, and, and, and the thing is like, everyone has a bigger voice now than they used to because they have access to all of, uh, you know, these social media platforms in, in a way that they never have. And especially in the last couple of years, you're looking at like a, like a TikTok or, or a Facebook, uh, not Facebook, I'm sorry, Instagram, like reels or like things like that. The, the reach that you could get off a random TikTok for something, I mean, you could get millions of views on that. I mean, now go back in time and tell someone in, in 1995, like, there's going to be this app, this thing, what's an app, <laughs> but no, but they'd be like, what, you know, there's going to be this thing where you can record a video of yourself, like doing whatever, dancing, talking about something like, you know, uh, doing a bit, you know, comedy bit. And that thing, you, you, the random person could potentially have millions of people watching you do that. They'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what are you, TV? Like someone would invite me on TV? No, it no, takes no, no, me no. 15 seconds to get online. That's it. 15 seconds. And it's going to be in your pocket, by the way. You're going to be able to carry it around your pocket. So imagine telling someone in like in the 90s or early 2000s that that would even be the case. Or even at the, you know, sort of mid 2000s when social media started to sort of, you know, catch, catch fire a little bit. So, you know, I think consumers have a bigger voice too. And um, yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know. It's... I think you just have to look at stuff on a on a case-by-case uh, -case basis. The one thing I will say is like looking, advising clients on this stuff. The one thing that I will say is like, if you decide as a brand that you're going to weigh in on an issue, do not backpedal. Like, you know, if you're, you better commit. 
So if you're going to make a stand on something like uh, ESG or like DEI or something like that, don't do it and then backpedal because there's like backlash from some like troll on the internet or some like collection of trolls on the internet, right? You, you have to stick to it because if you don't, you don't commit to it, then what you end up having is a situation where you've pissed off the trolls, but then you're also pissing off your own audience that you're trying to reach in the first place. So then you're like, you know, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So you got to, you have to really commit to it and be who you are, right? Like don't, don't back down from that. So that, that would be, you know, the one thing that we, we talk a little bit about is like, if you're going to do something like in the social good space, stick to it. And if you don't feel like you can, then, you know, try to do something else. Like don't, don't, you know, go down that path. So when you start with a client, do you kind of try to clearly define kind of, I wouldn't say their morals, but kind of where they stand on certain issues? Is that kind of like a starting point? Yeah, I mean, it depends. So like for corporate clients, um, oftentimes that's not necessarily the case that you're having. But I mean, you get a sense of what their what their values are. And some brands have very specific, very clear values, um, you know, where, where they're in those spaces. Others aren't aren't so clear necessarily. So, you know, you kind of have to talk about those things if you're going to operate in that space. Um, otherwise, um, you know, and, and also from a marketing perspective, and then take a look at the audience and be like, well, who are you reaching? Who do you want to reach? You know, who do you want to resonate with? How can you do it authentically? I mean, that's one thing that we've been thinking a lot about is authenticity. Like you can't shoehorn, um, you know, certain brands or even personalities into different boxes that where they don't fit. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And people will catch on to it too. Like there's a lack of self-awareness. <laughs> like if you're trying to be funny or do some like super cringy thing, you know, to borrow the Gen Z slang, right? Real cringe. Um, I'll probably get crucified by <laughs> my Gen Z for maybe misusing uh, some of that uh, lingo there. But um, but like there, there's, there is this element of cringe, right? That, um, that if you can't, if you're not self-aware about it or you're not being funny about it, that, um, it's it's bad. So we do often think about those values up front and and you know who the audience is and whether or not it makes sense to be talking about certain issues or not. Um, but uh, we definitely think about that. And for candidates, you know, you kind of know where they stand uh, on stuff already. So we get to make decisions. I mean, at least at our own firm, we get to make decisions about who we want to work with and who we don't. Um, so we say no plenty of times to to people, which is fine with me. So yeah, that that was going to be one of my questions on your your selective. Uh, for your clients and I guess candidates you take. Um, and that's awesome that you're at, a, obviously you're at a level where you can do that too. Like you're comfortable as a company where, you, and not just financially, but morally probably too. You're like, oh, we don't wanna touch them. And this is gonna sound a little dated, but when I watched Mad Men, they couldn't mm -hmm. have brands obviously. Like they couldn't, if they had Pepsi, they couldn't have cola. Is that something that you constantly think? Obviously, you can't have um, uh, like candidates, obviously, in the same race or in the same sector or anything like that. That's Is that something that you have to constantly check and not check and verify, but something you have to think about when you take clients too? Uh, yeah, always. So we uh, we we avoid conflict uh, of interest like, like the plague, um, which is – that sounds like a pretty – normal straightforward thing to do uh you would be shocked at some of the stories though that that circulate about people trying to play both sides of of you know races or issues or like you know, two, two candidates of the same party running against each other in a primary election and um one pr firm one one pr firm uh two like two partners have no idea that one is doing the other th it's you that's know, crazy 
messy breakups as a result of that, like corporate, you know, uh, firm sort of breakups because of that type of stuff. Um, so yes, we do have a, a pretty rigorous, uh, conflict check. Um, you know, if we get a sense that we're going to take on a new client that might, uh, have some interest that runs counter to, and they may have nothing to directly do with each other, but runs counter to one of our other clients that we've been working with. And we already, already are, uh, have, have on the roster. We will absolutely go check, um, check with them to see if it's okay or not. Okay. Um, you know, and then are pretty open with the new client about, okay, well we work with, you know, such and such uh, organization or, or, or candidate or company. Is this going to be a problem for you? Because like, you know, at the end of the day, it's our job to do a hundred percent, like make a hundred percent effort for, for that client. Like we can, like, I really hate to see consultants and PR firms and other people. I'm not saying it happens a lot, but you do see it where, you know, you try to play both sides of, of an issue or try to, you know, you back away from your client because it's, it, it feels like you're taking a little heat for something from someone else that, um, you know, you have an interest in not upsetting, um, I think that's nonsense. Uh, you you absolutely like if you if you accept a client, you're accepting the responsibility to do a hundred uh, uh, the the best job you possibly can do for them, and you have to advocate for them. So that's it. So that that's how we kind of look at it. And and if the answer to that very simple question of will we be able to go go to the mat for this client, should we need to? If the answer is no, then we can't take it. If the answer is yes, then yeah, okay, let's do it. No, that's great. I like that. Uh, so moving on to my next question, uh, what, and I, I want to phrase this correctly. Obviously you, you, you still have plenty of career left to go, but what is your, your, we'll say it this way then your Mona Lisa so far, what is like your golden moment that's that you have that keeps you driving that you've, uh, are happy every time you think about it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, um, we have a lot of cool things that that we get to work on, so I'm very very fortunate uh, to to have that. I um, mean, there are little things that happen every day that make me uh, happy and are um, that make me glad that I'm I'm doing this. Reinforce the fact that you know this is a great thing to be doing. So um, you know, for example, uh, it, it's just like small things sometimes. Like today, you know, we had uh, some of our team in in the office, which doesn't happen too, too often in one spot because we're kind of all over the place. We have, uh, you know, folks in D.C. We have folks up near up here in Jersey, uh, different parts of the state um, uh, team member in uh, in uh, Louisiana. So it's like we're we're pretty spread out. But uh, we had the opportunity to gather today and we were doing some uh, work for for a client, you know, putting together some creative stuff. And it was just cool to see, you know, a couple of our team members just clicking and really, uh, you know, locking into a creative process and like bouncing stuff off of each other. And, um, you know, for for a growing team, a uh, small but growing team, uh, small by design in many ways, uh, that was such a cool thing to see. You know, it's like we have th that we've developed a culture here um, among among our team that we're able to take risks um, creatively. We're able to take intellectual risks um, that, so that was a fun, like stuff like that makes me really happy because that's, it's important to me because you see it all over that. you see the opposite happening in so many places. And, and um, you know, when we started hiring people, um, I, my first thing was like, we have to have a culture that, that allows for everyone to be wrong at some point or to screw up or to fail or, 
what I mean, or, or to offer a bad, I mean, because I have plenty of bad ideas, we all do, right? <laughs> Every now and then. So you have to have that space to be able to be honest about it, throw it out there, evaluate it, and then, you know, get there. So we like to say, you know, it's not about being right. It's about getting the right answer. And, you know, so it's like stuff like that is is super cool uh, to see. And and watching the team succeed in in their own ways to kind of pick up the ball and run with it, because I mean, I started this on my own. So like it was me and whatever was in my head on that and on any given day. And then, um, you know, I have a, a great partner who came in in 2014. Uh, we've been working together since then, uh, brought on our first employee a few years later and, um, you know, been growing ever since. But but just watching um, watching everyone on our team kind of like, again, pick up, be able to pick up the ball and just sort of run with it and um in in some ways like do a much better job than than you know just i could do on my own uh it's been a very gratifying experience so i love that um you know i I, some of the campaigns that we've done too are um are pretty important to us you know just because they they make a big difference in in people's lives so um you know there are moments uh there as well uh that you know that i could point to but i would say like for me the the most present thing every day is is this the little victories, you know, every day that we, we get through this problem or we solve it as a team or we're, we're all kind of clicking and working really well together. So that's, that's huge for me. Um, very, very gratifying. No, that's great. I mean, I can, I can totally get that from a kind of like you're the owner and this is, you're taking it personal. This is like what you built. You selected these people and just to see them work together. That's great. And it was all in person. Yeah, it was all uh, all in person today. So we had a couple a uh, couple of our team members in in person today. Um, I'm not like a huge like get back in the office, you know, type. Yeah, person. You yeah. Know, we yeah. Do plenty. Of good. We, we we were actually working virtually uh, on Zoom prior to the pandemic, so <laughs> we had a Zoom subscription before. So we were uh, in on the ground floor of uh, of Zoom. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, which is cool. But yeah, so in in person. Um, but even like, you know, when you hear it on calls or like different things or like see the growth of various members of the team. I mean, there was a point at which, you know, when you're starting a business, you don't even know if you're going to have a team at some point. I was like, I don't know if this is going to work out or not, but we're going to give it a shot. And, you know, you're kind of just hammering away at whatever you can and learning what you can do on your own. And then you start bringing people in and it's like, wow, this is working out. Cool. Yeah, I don't have to work uh, seven days a week. I don't have to constantly have it in the back of my head, even though I still will, but I'll have less work. Is that kind of the vibe you feel? A little bit, yeah. So I think uh, there there are a couple of of th- so that's been a management challenge. It's interesting. I try to be like pretty transparent too with the team about like growing as a manager because like obviously it's, again starting on my own, um, and then and then bringing my partner on. Um, and again, very fortunate to have um, you know my partner involved with this. Uh, and we sort of developed a way of communicating that was sort of like shorthand, kind of like back and forth. We'd always be able to just like get through stuff and and do it very quickly and, and kind of developed an intuition about what the other person was saying about like cre- different creative choices or different, um, you know, uh, strategies or, or thoughts on things. So we were able to, uh, develop that. And then like, when you start bringing other people into that mix, it's like, wait a second, I think we gotta, we have to crack this open a little bit more, <laughs> try to try to like figure out what it is we're doing between us two and then help communicate that to the rest of the team. So that's been an interesting challenge. Um, going through. Uh, so I don't know if it means necessarily less work. Generally speaking, I could just like shift my focus a little bit to to different different areas, uh, or more of my focus to different areas. Um, you know, we, we do try to foster a, a pretty good 
work-life balance. But at the end of the day, my philosophy is that, you know, everyone working, um, you know, with us uh, on the team, um, you know, they, they deserve work-life balance. Uh, for me, uh, you know, of course, like I try to get it myself, but like there are times when you have to put in the extra hours and guess what? It's my responsibility, right? So if something happens like late at night or like on a weekend, that's on me, right? I got to figure it out and on, on my partner too. You know, we both, we both kind of just figure it out and, and, you know, try not to drag, drag other people into, uh, into it unless it's totally necessary. So I think, um, uh, so it, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, taking, you know, more, more time off though. I've been, though I have been, you know, trying to organize things a little bit better to, uh, to achieve a little bit more work-life balance. Yeah, that's always good. And I totally get that with you trying to expand. It's like, it's, it's hard to, I hate sports metaphors, but hand off the ball to other people because you want to do just as good effort. And you feel like if you could pass this on, I, I still want to do a really good job, but if I'm passing this work off to someone else, are they going to handle it just as well as I would? And your name behind the company is since you hired other people, they're, they're under you. So what they do falls under what your company does and your name. So it's very difficult to kind of, you know, like give that power to employees as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, the sports metaphor, I think is, is helpful in, in that, um, or analogy is, is helpful in that sense. Um, in that, you know, handing people the ball, it's like, okay, so my, my style might be to run up the middle, you know, run up the middle and just smash my way through or whatever. And then someone else's style might be able, you know, they might try to go around, you know, the pile and, and, um, you know, run to the sideline and then, you know, just run faster than everyone else. Right. And that's fine. You can score touchdowns both ways. Um, so I think that's, that's fine. And, but getting used to that, right. Cause you're, you know, again, I use that analogy, but like, you, you know, I'm used to just running up the middle and smashing away. And then, you know, you, you hand the ball off to someone and you see them running the other way up the field and you're like, oh, what's going on here. But then it's like, wait a second. No, that's just a different kind of thing. And you can absolutely move the ball forward. You can score touchdowns that way. Totally fine. Like it doesn't matter how you do it as long as it's done the right way. Um, and there are a million different right ways to do it. So, um, but th that's a hard realization. It's like the first time you fully let go, you're like, okay, here we go. <laughs> no, I, I've been there. Uh, so with all this advancement in AI and uh, search engine optimization, what do you feel like makes the biggest impact on I, obviously changing narrative for clients or uh we'll just say clients today and what do you see it being five or ten years from now yeah i mean ai is um a huge challenge potentially uh, from a reputation perspective huge challenge because i mean these um the ability to create a facsimile of a person both from you know an audio perspective and and the visual uh, is getting a lot better too um is is getting to a point where it's it's quite convincing so yeah ai uh is is a crazy um sort of a crazy development in that uh it's it's getting very good at at um you know it, people are, are getting good at, at imitating you know real life people and uh so there was a situation recently where you know someone took uh 
a segment of um, a speech that the uh, the president had made and then ran that through, you know, machine learning model and did a, a robo call, you know, one of those automated calls up in New Hampshire, telling voters to vote two days like after election day, right? And so real, so it sounds like him, right? Like if you're not really paying attention, sure, there are like little things, little tells or whatever, but it was, uh, you know, I think that's sort of the first salvo uh, or one of the first salvos that we're seeing in, in sort of the AI wars with that. So in terms of, um, you know, the issues we're, we're likely to have from a reputational perspective, I think we're only scratching the surface at this point. And I'm not sure that there are a whole lot of safeguards in place, uh, you know, both from the AI companies and social media platforms too. Like I know they're trying to, uh, you know, put in, put in place, um, you know, little, uh, check boxes that you can hit, you know, is, Oh, this is like, you know, altered content or, you know, AI generated content. Okay, great. Like, but that, that assumes that you're going to actually check the box and that there isn't some, you know, filter that can't figure that or that can figure that out. So it's, um, so it's, it's definitely an issue and something that we're thinking a lot about with clients. Like, how do you, what do you do if, if AI, you like some AI clone of you does something, you know, totally outrageous. Like that, uh, first episode from black mirror, if anybody knows that. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're like right there, I think in, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what AI can do. I mean, there are also a lot of good things too, um, you know, in terms of, uh, being able to analyze big data sets and, you know, kind of ask questions and, and, uh, speed up sort of, uh, productivity in, in some spaces, but, uh, but it, it is kind of spooky in, in other ways. Yeah. It, I, I always hear, and I'm, I, I'm a computer engineer and I always hear when people say that data to see trends and stuff like that, but I've never, you know, like whenever I hear big data, I hear big companies making even more money off of information. And it's like, it never kicks back until, you know, like 10 or 50. It's like Facebook, whenever they had the Cambridge analytics and stuff like that. What was that, like 10 or 15 years down the line? But that's 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 a whole nother podcast, whole different episode. Uh, so what would what what do you see the long term goals of publics down the line? What do you envision the company to be? Sure. Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, so what I like to say is that our goal is to continue working on some of the most difficult and interesting problems out there. Um, and as long as we're doing that and we are seen as the, uh, the firm that excels in, in those spaces that, um, I'll be perfectly happy doing that. So I think, uh, overall the future of this industry is agile is small not necessarily gigantic, you know, uh, thousand employee operations. Of course, there's always going to be a place for that. But I think uh, there is a specific um, space uh, where you can build an extraordinarily efficient and effective small team that can handle a, a wide array of problems, especially the most difficult ones. Um, so so for me, as long as we're continuing to do that and um, and also like for our team providing a, a great workplace, uh, you know, and, and helping them provide and, and, 
you know, for, for their own lives. Um, you know, that's extraordinarily important to me as well. So I think, uh, 10, you know, 15 years, um, you know, we'll be working on, on some really interesting problems. Um, you know, who, who knows, like probably some, something related to AI or, uh, or other other sorts of technological uh, innovations at, at that at that point. So that's really um, I, I think uh, what what my goal is um, beyond that, and just to continue doing this, and as long as I find it fun for myself, um, and uh, and when I don't, then you know someone else can take the uh, take the reins. Oh, that's a great answer. Um, last question, and like I said, you can take your time to think about it. What is something that your parents did that you'd like to pass on to a next generation? And what is something that you might do differently or new that they didn't do? Sure. I think that, um, you know, something that we did, uh, you know, a, a good amount of growing up was, um, you know, volunteering a bit for, for different, uh, you know, different causes and, and different things. So as imperfect as your life can be, you can kind of look back and say, okay, well, my parents, um, you know, emphasized, you know, this one thing or another thing. So always kind of uh, emphasized, you know, give, giving back to to people in, in different ways. So um, I, I would say like in, instilling that in the next generation is, is important, you know, just trying to take care of neighbors and, um, you know, doing whatever you can for, for people who aren't, you know, doing so well themselves for whatever reason for a lot of times um you know as a result of things that are completely out of their own control uh so you know i would say that that is um you know that's definitely something that's that's a pretty you know timeless kind of thing is is you know try to give back as, as much as you can um you know something uh different that that i would do um that's a really interesting question like it's it's funny because you think about growing up and things are so different now and are gonna be so much different for future generations um and i think i don't know i think every generation may have felt that way probably um but uh just even thinking about again like having the team in the office today so we've got we've got some millennials right so i'm sort of the middle middle millennial um as as is my partner and then we've got a younger uh you know, younger millennials and then Gen Z, right? And the differences between even those age cohorts where where we all are working in the same space and we're all uh, pretty technically close in age. So really, I kind of grew up on the cusp of like where social media was um, kind of just starting to come out. So like senior year of high school, only then could you start getting access to Facebook um, for with a university, with a college email address. Um, we had MySpace, so, you know, that was, that was crazy. <laughs> so MySpace was like the thing, um, but it was nothing like, like before and like growing up, like as a, a younger kid, we had one computer in our household. It never worked. Right. I mean, it was like the, you remember gateway, the, the, it looked like a cow, you know, the box or whatever, like those. Yes. Yes. So we always had the worst computer. Right. And, um, it never worked. It was always like laden with viruses, like computer viruses from one thing or another. So, you know, the internet was a much different thing growing up. It's not like, we, you know, we were, you know, going to bed with, with iPads and, and, you know, re reading on them. So it's like, it's kind of hard to think like, what would you, uh, you know, pass on to, you know, something differently for the next generation? Cause it's, it's hard to conceive of even what someone who grew up just a few years after I did, 
went through, uh, you know, having access to that sort of technology and information and all that stuff. Um, I don't know. That's a really good question. Like, what would you do differently? Um, I don't know. One thing that always kind of I think about, and I'm not sure if if this is, you know, something that, you know, previous shit, but like really, you know, focusing on mental health, I think is an important thing. You know, just talking about that as much as possible, because like the way that that looks is different now, too. And there's so many other stress. Again, like social media is kind of stressful, right? You're seeing it in, in Congress where, uh, where, you know, they're, they're, uh, the big platforms are in these hearings talking about how social media is impacting kids and, and their, their development and all, all of these different things. And, um, and it's real, right. It's a really real thing. Um, so, um, I don't know, like having some sort of mental health kind of, you know, being more open about that and, and kind of, uh, passing that value on to, to kids, uh, down the line. I'm just saying like, look, like it's okay to, to focus on on some of these things and on your mental health and it's okay to have feelings and like you should be able to express them in a certain way and i don't know so and that wasn't always something that, that we had growing up it was sort of just like there's still a little bit of that like i feel like i'm one of those like back in my day right we used to have to walk to school both ways uphill and and in the snow barefoot and it's like well that's not exactly what it, but it's like there was a little bit of a suck it up mentality right like if something bad happens you know suck it up yeah case of the grumpies yeah yeah, yeah. So it's like you're fine. Don't worry about it. Like we're, uh, you know, uh, you're, you know, you're feeling something, and and uh, it's it's you know a valid thing. Is you know just suck it up. You'll you'll be alright. Don't don't talk. Stiff upper lip. Don't talk to anyone. <laughs> talk about it. So I think, um, you know, having having some um, sort of conversation about that. Uh, I don't know. That's it's probably the best I can do there. Cause, I mean, because again, it's so hard to conceive of like what the even the next generation is going to look like, or what this generation growing up is is going to. When you look at some of these kids today and you're like, man, what is the world going to be like when you're my age? It's like bizarre. It's like jets. Are we finally getting to the Jetsons? <laughs> like yeah. robotic maid, you know, running around and flying cars and stuff. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what it seems like it's going to with everything in the early stages, holograms and AI. And I don't know. I saw something <laughs> that's not even technologically advanced but it was people who came to your house who filled up your tank of gas i just thought and people who come to your house to pick up poop even though robots will do that when i say pick up poop i mean dog's poop <laughs> but it's just like those things if like you said earlier like 15 or 20 years ago you told me things like that that there would be stuff like that and it just just changes your your perspective on what will be and what is currently but uh no that that was a good answer and yeah a lot a lot of people around our age millennials pick mental health because um this is going to sound funny but like let's say 1940s or 1960s and or maybe i'm making a generalization but i think dental hygiene is what mental health is or what it has been be today what it was 15 years because back then i dental hygiene was something oh okay maybe I'll, I'll i'll go to the dentist and get my teeth and some people didn't even go mm -hmm. to the dentist back then it wasn't even a thing but nowadays like um you know like taking days off for mental health or seeing a therapist or um, just being mindful i feel like that's more stronger today than it was 15 or 20 years ago but yeah that that is a good one.
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Especially for young men, I think, too, that that's one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is like, what you know, where, where are these young men kind of like getting into, a, you know, bad, bad spaces, you know, or, or bad headspace or, you know, acting out in a certain way. And it's, um, you know, it's just like there has to be a good model for for how to manage your feelings and manage your emotions and, and confront the world in front of you, which is a lot different than, you know, what was modeled for us growing up. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that's okay that the world is different. It's just a matter of like, okay, like we need to make sure everyone's got the emotional tools to kind of handle these things because it's a, it's not like anyone was like telling us how to, how to deal with it. Right. So like, you kind of just see the stuff that you grow up with. So I would say like young men too, especially, you know, invest in, in, in mental health and kind of try to understand what it is that's driving whatever feeling or driving people into like these, these sort of darker corners of, of, uh, or more sinister corners of the internet, um, which is, you know, a little, a little terrifying because like, again, there are these like little gateways right out there. And like, you, you put one foot forward through it and you kind of start listening. Oh, well, that doesn't sound so bad. And then you listen to the next thing and the next thing. And then all of a sudden you're like down the algorithmic rabbit hole, uh, from hell and um you know you're listening to some pretty extreme nasty stuff and uh you know it's i think it all stems from a place of just feeling like there's no model for how to how to manage you know feelings and manage the world that we're in um so i don't know i think that's something i do think about a little bit too no those are some good notes to be fair the level extent of pr that i had was uh tv shows so the thick of it house of cards veep <laughs> great show by the way which one oh man and and, uh that that's one of his best i don't care if you watch any of those other shows you you really need to know british television and like have the side subtitles on but if anyone's seen veep it's like it's based off of veep but sorry other way around the thick of it is based off of veep and in the loop but it's just really good bollocking like insults oh god i I like to just watch it in the background, but well, you know what? It's funny. There's um, there is a Malcolm Tucker deep, deep in here. Some days, some days you're dealing with something, and you're and you know you've you've seen the Malcolm Tucker like outburst, and you're like, oh man, I really want to do the the bean to cup, you know? <laughs> yeah, oh. you know it's it's uh it's great, but it's funny when people so people ask me um people ask me a lot like politics like what what is it really like is it like House of Cards or is it like Veep? And I was like honestly, it's Veep. <laughs> That's like the most accurate representation of of my day to day. And it's funny, the further I get into my career, I just rewatched Veep and like some of the episodes just hit a little too close to home. Some because you're like, oh, God, I know someone like this or like, you know, I, I had a client who did this exact thing and it was so stupid. And it's like, so it's not House of Cards, right? There's no like calculated, like Machiavellian sort of plotting through things it's um it's 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 veep it's it's one uh sort of uh caper af- after another uh sometimes and, and parks and rec too that's another if you're looking for like uh, a show that accurately represents local government and politics you know parks you're gonna throw a little bit of curb your enthusiasm in there too oh yeah you know there, that's uh that might be a little dry i think for for real it's um I don't know. There's just something about Veep, though, or, or the thick of it that that's very. It's it's just so it hits very close to home. Like I think I don't know. It's it's as if Armando Anucci kind of like spent time, actually, like on, as a fly on the wall, some of these places because you're like, what is going on? So it's funny. It's this. That's a disappointing answer for a lot of people, though. They want to believe it's like the Frank Underwood pushing like a journalist under the train tracks and uh, in the yeah. underground, you know, or the uh, metro or whatever, and. 
yes yes the metro the lovely metro thanks again and uh i appreciate it thanks for being on yeah appreciate you having me i enjoyed the conversation if you like this week's episode of people more interesting than me please follow me on apple podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these